Good morning, beloved. I just remembered what I was trying to remember during announcements. Uh, Christmas Eve, we'll, have, uh, we'll be having one service. It's on Sunday this year, just so everyone knows. So we'll have just our regular service on Sunday, Christmas Eve. This time we come to the preaching of God's Word. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We are making our way through and our focus for this morning will be in the second half of verse 9 through verse 11. But for our context today, I do want to begin reading back in verse 5. If you weren't with us last week, we covered verses 5 through 9a last week, so I do want to bring in the context there. So we'll begin in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5 this morning, and I'll read our text once through, and then we can see how it applies. The Apostle Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have been working our way through this little section that really began back in verse 1 and carries all the way down to verse 17. I've broken up into three sections, but this could be all read and studied in, in one section, verses 1 through 17. And the bottom line here is a very simple principle that began all the way back in verse 1, which sort of lays the foundation for this teaching, which is since you have been raised with Christ, since we are in Christ and Christ is in us, and since verse 3, we have died to ourselves, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. And this is something Paul does often, where he lays out a series of doctrinal truths of what Christ has done in us, and then he lays out our responsibility from that premise. It's summed up for us in a familiar passage in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, which I'm sure you're aware of. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that really describes the pathology of our spiritual life and sanctification. God has done a transforming work in you, and now it's your responsibility to let that inward work out and be manifest on the outside for the world to see. Now, to be clear, work out your own salvation doesn't mean work for your salvation. 
It means to make manifest on the outside the salvation that God has wrought on the inside. And you do that, Paul says, with fear and trembling. Why? Why fear and trembling? Because it's not easy. It's hard to live the godly life. It's hard to overcome our remaining flesh day after day, putting it to death. But we have to remember that God is holy and God is watching. And so we do that with a sense of reverent awe and a sense of trembling in the light of us chastening if we were to be disobedient. So we as believers are called upon, having been given a new nature, having become a new creation, the oldest passed away, behold, the new has come. So to live in such a way to make that manifest. Now again, obviously, no one earns your salvation by works. It is the gift of God by grace through faith. But just as we're not passive in our salvation, we're not passive in our sanctification either. True believers will obey the word of God. Not perfectly, but it is our hearts to desire to do God's will for his good pleasure. And beloved, this is how we work out the inward work of God to the outside and make it manifest both to God and to men. As we are obedient to God and his word, the power of God equips the new man in you both to will and to work out his good pleasure. And we are to work that to the outside so it is manifest for all to see it. And for example, we see this in a, a powerful verse I, I shared with you last week. Let me share with you again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says something similar. He says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, look at this, this is incredible, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What an amazing statement. We are the ones who are called here to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and thus perfecting the work of holiness. This is the responsibility of the believer. We are called to, be, uh, to pursue holiness and godliness, virtue and sanctification. In Ephesians 4, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with which you have been called. This is what the Christian life and sanctification really is all about. In Romans chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and a lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification sanctification so there again is a command to to put off the old self in this case as slaves to impurity and lawlessness and to put on the new selves as slaves to righteousness now essentially what i just showed you here in romans 6 and second corinthians 7 and in philippians 2 is what paul is talking about in colossians chapter 3 since we have been raised with christ since we have die to ourselves and our life is hidden with Christ and God. Since all that is true, now you work out your salvation. And then that leads to a series of imperatives that Paul lists that defines our spiritual responsibility. He says, keep seeking the things above 
Uh, set your mind where Christ is. Uh, kill what is earthly in you. Um, put them all away, and all those kinds of commands fill the section through of what I have just read. Now, some of the commands are negative, like what we saw last week in, in verse 5. The, that is the negative section, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexually immoral, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, which is idolatry. And then the second list down in verses 8 to 9, now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene, talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. And so those are the negative things, and we covered those last week. But as we come to the second half of verse 9, we shift to the positive side, and this section will take us all the way down to verse 17. As here, Paul will tell the Colossian believers that not only do they have to take off the old self, but they must also learn to put on the new self. And to do that, they must understand, number one, the position of the new man. The position of the new man. You'll see that line on the back of your bulletin notes. And we'll begin looking at the second half of verse 9 into the beginning of verse 10. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And then down in verse 12, he'll say what we're to put on. He, he goes further. Just to give you a little contextual connection here, he gives the negative aspects of what you're to put off in verses 5 to 9, the positive aspects of what you're to put on in verses 12 to 17, and then in verses 9 to 10 here that we're in, there's a little bridge between the put off and the put on. And it ties the old to the new. This is really the work of God. We do some, see some of our sanctification in here, but this is mostly God's work. And then he's going to say, and now you, verse 12, do this. And it just ties the old to the new. It gives away from the old life to the new life across a chasm that could never have been crossed except through the Lord Jesus Christ, as he has made you a new creation. Since you are new, since you are redeemed, since you are a new man, put this off and put this on. Now notice again that term in verse 9, the old self. What does he mean, put off the old self with its practices? What is this old self? Well, let's try to see if we can have it described to ourselves. In Romans 6, 6 through 7, it says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, that's how Paul refers to it in Romans 6. Our old self was our body of sin. That is the old self, our body of sin. But he says, when we became united in Christ, that old self, the old man, was crucified. Crucified with him in order that our body of sin, follow along, might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. What good news. We also know Galatians 2.20, and what that says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so number one, the old man is 
crucified. Let me give, me, give you a, a second one. Ephesians 4.22. Ephesians 4.22 says that in reference to your, your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. All right. So now we've learned two things about the old self. First of all, the old self was crucified. And then secondly, the old self was corrupt. And, and what was it corrupt from? It was corrupt from our sin nature. Our sin nature. We inherited our sin nature from Adam. It was inherited our, from our unregenerated self. And that conversion, that was killed crucified, dead. It was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, Romans 6.6. 6. Now, people have argued forever about this, that a Christian can have both the new man and the old man. But that's impossible if you're using Scripture. Because that old self that was corrupted has been crucified and is now dead. You are a new what? Creation. Old is gone. The old self is that which was replaced by the new self, the regenerated man. The new man, the new self. If you have a new man and an old man, then you have a regenerated part and an unregenerated part. In other words, you're half saved and half lost, but that's not going to cut it, is it? Because it says also in Colossians 2.10, in Christ you have been made what? Complete. Filled. So what is the old self? It is the unregenerate self. It is described in Romans 6 as our body of sin. It is your former manner of life that is described as being corrupted by sin in Ephesians 4.22. And if you are in Christ, Romans 6.6 6 says that our old self was crucified in him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So to argue that believers have both the old self and the new self is to argue, in effect, that the believer's soul is half regenerate and half unregenerate. And there is no support for such a thing in Scripture. Well, now that we've got the old self out of the way, what is the new self, and how does this help us to understand our position of the new man? Well, back in verse 9, it says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. The new self is the regenerated self. It is the saved self. It is the redeemed self. And by regenerate, I'm talking about born again. The new self that has been created in Christ Jesus. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote, There are but two men that are seen standing before God, Adam and Jesus Christ. And these two men have all other men hanging at their belts. End quote. I like the picture of that. The Bible views all men either as in Christ or as in Adam. In fact, Paul gives the contrast between Christ and Adam in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, which is really one of the most rich and profound theological passages in all of Scripture. Turn there for a minute, if you will, and we'll just kind of highlight some of Paul's points real quickly, as these are just amazing verses. Romans 12 through 21, you can look through later and 
get the full teaching of it, but I just want to skim through it just to give you the idea of this teaching. Romans 15, uh, 5, 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and this one man he's talking about is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here he says, Adam brought sin and death into the world, and this sin nature spread to all men. And he talks about this through 14. That's one section. And then he makes an interesting shift. And in verses 15 to 18, he says, but through Christ comes grace and righteousness. Verse 15, we'll peek at that. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And then just notice verse 19 that kind of summarizes the whole thing. Through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But through Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous. Okay? And, and this is the tremendous distinction between Adam and Christ. In Adam, there is death. In Christ, there is life. In Adam is the old self. In Christ is the new self. You see, the question the Jews had was, how can one man, Jesus Christ, possibly redeem many? How can one man have that much of an effect on so many people? It's impossible. That was one of the Jewish arguments. And so Paul simply says, oh yeah? What about Adam? <laughs> Adam was one man who did one thing and affected all humanity. Adam fell, and we all went with him, didn't we? And so he's pointing out the fact that one man's deed can affect all humanity. The first Adam did, and so does the last Adam, who was Christ. So you don't renew the old self. You replace him with the new self. That's why it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. This has always been God's plan. Um, not just to dust you off and to make you look better, okay? But to make you brand new. That's God's design, and that's what Christ came to accomplish. Now, the characteristics of our new self are all over the place in the New Testament. But if you want to see a couple of them highlighted together, you can turn to Ephesians 4 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. What's it like to be... A new man. Well, Ephesians 4, 17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their mind. So the first thing we learn about the new man is he's called to live not as those around him do. He's to be different than the rest of the world. Why, you ask? Because the rest of the world is corrupted by its fallen nature we're to stand out we're to be different we're, to, we're supposed to be lights in the darkness so the first great truth is your new self is different from your old self another thing we find out about the new man and again this is just kind of going through ephesians ephesians chapter 5 1 through 2 there's a couple further indicators for us that we are to be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Wow. 
So not only is the new self radically different from this world, but he functions in the category of love. The, the new self walks in an attitude of love towards others because he's experienced a love like no other found in Jesus Christ. So he operates in divine love. Jump down to verse 8. Paul gives us something else. It says in the middle of verse 8, Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then on that, just jump down to verse 15. It continues with this idea. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the new self, in contrast to the old self, is the regenerated self. It is what believers are in Christ. He is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The new man walks differently from the rest of the world. They walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. And that's just one little passage to give you insight on what the new self is like. Now the question then arises as to why believers sin if the old self is really gone, right? That's really what this argument comes about because everyone's saying, well, wait a minute here. If you're saying that the old self is gone and there's only the new self that's left, then, then what is going on with, with Christians who sin? And that's kind of the, ar the argument that they take. And the answer is, is that they do so because the new self lives in the old body and must contend with the flesh. The flesh is a teaching in scripture that we see. We see a division of the old and new self. That's the change. That's the picture of the heart of stone being taken out and a heart of flesh being put in. This is an actual, tangible transformation that doesn't just kind of change you, that radically, totally changes you from the kingdom in the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light and of the beloved son. And so we know that that is true. We've studied those scriptures over and over again. But how do you explain this This Christians who sin. And the truth is, is that the, the new self is contending with the flesh. And you have to make a distinction, I think, between the flesh and the old self and scripture. When you start mixing things all up, your flesh is just your humanness, and it hangs around and it hangs around, and it tempts the old man. And do you know what the flesh does? You know, it runs back to that pile of fifth, filthy clothes that we talked about last week after you've just been cleaned by the precious blood of Christ. And it's like you go and get redressed with those filthy clothes, those filthy rags after you've been washed clean. And that's what the flesh does. And not only do the old clothes stink, but they remind you of who you once were. And that's why Paul says in in Romans chapter 7, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature or flesh a slave to the law of sin. So if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, has been crucified with Christ. Behold, the new has come. That is the new self. The old self is dead. He's buried. If we act like the old man, that is our remaining flesh. And we must put him to death. Because remember, Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then we don't forget what we read last week in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, let's get back to our passage in Colossians 3 and take it another step forward. We saw the position of the new man in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. You're different. You walk in love. You walk in light. You walk in wisdom. You're a whole new creation. That's the position of the new man. And then secondly, we see the progress of the new man. The progress. He moves from the position of the new man to the progress. And the progress is seen in verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's a progression here that I want you to notice. Now, you just became a Christian, right? Uh, you're, you, here's the new man, a, a totally new creation, starting off fresh here. But you still got this flesh bugging you, saying, come on, put me back on. You, you know, you look awfully funny in that new robe that you're wearing. Don't you want to put me back on? And, and you're going to have to begin to conquer that flesh little by little, day by day, as, as you walk in the power of Christ. And so there's a progression in the conquering of the flesh. It's like a new baby that's been born. It looks a little bit like maybe the father or the mother. Can't really tell. You know it's your child. And as it begins to grow and grow, it starts to look more like mom or dad or, or features of both of them. The same thing is true in your spiritual life. You were born again, you maybe look a little bit like your heavenly father at first. But as you begin to go along and grow and progress, you start to grow more and more into the image here of Christ. And you see that in verse 10. As you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of who? Its creator. So the new nature is complete, and yet it has the capacity for growth. Just like a baby is complete, and yet it has the capacity to grow itself. And as we are being renewed in the knowledge of Christ, we become more and more like Christ. And that is the progress of the new man. An incredible verse is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49, which tells us, just as we have been born the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Isn't that awesome? That's an astounding statement. This is at the end of that great 15th chapter of the resurrection and being made new. Inevitably, it is God's plan to make believers like Christ. That's God's promise, to conform you into the image of Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You know this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Why? For, who, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. If you are saved, it is God's plan to make you like his Son. That's the promise progress but how how is he going to do this what does it say back in colossians 3 10 it says the new self which is being renewed unto knowledge and there's that word from second peter again epigenosis which means a true knowledge a a deep uh, and personal knowledge that's that's intimate 
and complete. There's a process of renewing going on in you to bring you to a full knowledge. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Sometimes we've got to read this verse twice. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. You see, Paul knew that God was at work in his inner man day after day after day after day. Colossians 3.10 in knowledge. He's in the process of maturing you as you are being renewed in knowledge. How does Paul say it in Romans 12.2? Being transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is why it's so important that we commit to the study of God's word, that we allow the time to, to get into the word and to dig into the word and, and to have the word penetrate our hearts and our minds. You need to really commit time and push everything out of the way to commit yourself to the Lord in prayer and spirit and the study of his word to really get it in there. I mean, I've got to, sometimes I'll sit there and I'll be rereading, rereading sections of the, of the word and I go, man, I'm distracted. I'm not, I'm not getting what this is, this is getting, telling me here. And I've got to make sure I re-clear everything because I'm scattered and thinking about this and thinking about that and just pray and, get, and take some time to really commit myself to the study of God's word and allow the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to renew our minds, to wield that sword. And this is why 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is such an important verse for the Christian to stand on. Paul tells young Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for notice, training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter exhorts believers like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect, look at this, to salvation. The word of God is the food that fuels the growth of the new self. How fast believers grow depend on how much knowledge they put into practice into their lives. We need to appropriate that knowledge, turn it into fuel that feeds our body that it may grow in respect to salvation. It's the pure milk of the word. And ultimately, the goal of that knowledge is to conform the believers into, what's it say, verse 10, the image of its creator. Right? It's not just to have a bunch of knowledge sitting up here in my head, but it's actually supposed to change me, transform me, renew me into the image of of Christ. The new self becomes progressively more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, when will that happen? <laughs> well, it won't happen until the fullness of time comes and you see Jesus, as 1 John 3, 2 says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Isn't that going to be awesome? You know, hey, I know I'm a long way off. 
a long way off from being like Jesus. But you know what? I'm a lot more like Jesus than when I first started. <laughs> you know? Can you say the same thing? Yeah. All right? I mean, you don't even want to see a snapshot of where I was 10, 10 12 years ago. And so Paul shows us, number one, the position of the new man, the progress of the new man, and then thirdly, the partnership of the new man, the partnership. And this is, this is incredible. This is, this is the power of the gospel. I mean, this is really neat. Check out verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. We've got to dig into this a little bit to see how rich this is. You've got to be patient sometimes with, with texts like this. But Paul says, not only do I want to talk to you about the position of the new man and, and, and the progress of the new man, but let me let you in on this fantastic truth about the partnership of the new man. And this is a really fantastic dimension of your new life. This is the abolishing of all the old barriers. Um, there, of course, aren't any racial barriers. Um, there's no place for um, any kind of uh, uh, cultural snobbery. Um, there's no place for any of these, these barriers and dividing walls that, that we as a society has put up. God has united all believers and has made us, and I love this, and it ties in perfectly with Ephesians 2, verse 15. God has made us one new man. We're all new men, but composited, we make one new man. Um, this is really a startling revelation for this first century culture. I mean, we really have a difficult time, and I've mentioned this several times, to, to imagine the barriers of what was going on just in the Jew and Gentile differences of worlds. But here you see the racial barrier, that's the Jew and the Gentile, uh, which is also the religious barrier for them. But that's the religious barrier is mentioned in the circumcised and uncircumcised. So you have the racial barrier, the religious barrier, the cultural barrier, which is the barbarians and the Scythians. And then you have the social barriers, and that's the slaves and the free man. And they had barriers in all those levels of, of society. All right? And Christianity comes walking in and says, they're all irrelevant. You're all one new man in Christ. Okay? Now, I want to show you these barriers for just a minute. The Jew and Gentile had been at each other for centuries. I mean, there was no fellowship between Jew and Gentile. All right? They didn't have anything to do with one another. A Jew was forbidden to ever enter into a Gentile house. Um, you remember when we were going through John's gospel and we got to uh, John chapter 4 and um, the Samaritan woman at the well. And um, John, um, well, first the wom woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? You Jews don't speak to us Samaritans. We're a bunch of half-breeds. And when we read in John, John chapter 4, verse 9, the apostle adds the cultural context there. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so when Jesus came onto the scene, he just broke those barriers in half. And he says, I'm, I've got a date to go see a woman in Samaria at a well, and I'm going to change her life. 
and they're going, Samaria? I mean, if possible, they would take the long way around. They would go, Samaria was right across the middle, Galilee's up top, Jerusalem's down below. They would come all the way around and go around Samaria and go up to get to Galilee if possible, adding, you know, probably 25 additional at least miles to their, to their walk, just so that they wouldn't put their feet in that Gentile, Samaritan, not even worse than, maybe they were even considered worse than Gentile because they were half, they were mixed. They were the Samaritans. They were once Jews and now they've left being Jewish and have mixed up their faith with the Gentiles and so they're the Samaritans. And so they would actually literally walk around them so they wouldn't become defiled. They would not eat the meat um, with a Gentile utensil. They would not eat something if it was cooked in a Gentile pot. They wouldn't buy meat or the cut if it was cut or butchered with Gentile hands. And when they went to a Gentile country and came back to their own, they shook the dirt off their clothes and their feet because they didn't want to bring that dirty Gentile dirt into Jewish territory. And the Gentiles were just as bad. <laughs> and uh, they felt the same about the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden the gospel comes along and says you're one. And it's just this incredible statement that you see that the gospel goes through and changes the hearts and minds of believers. Secondly, there was the cultural barriers. And look at this. This is really interesting. No, not only the circumcised and the uncircumcised and the Greek and the Jew, but the Scythians and the barbarians. I don't know about if you know anything about these groups, but they're, it's pretty fascinating. Um, first of all, there are not two different kinds of people groups here. Um, these are two of the same kind. They're both barbaric. They're barbars, barbarians, barbars. That's what they were called. The Scythians were just worse than the barbarians. They were the, the worst of them. They were the most uncultured barbarians they were of the day. Herodias, a historian, gives an account of one of their invasions. And listen to the description of the Scythians. They invaded Asia after they had driven the Samaritans out of Europe. And they made themselves masters of all Asia. From there, they marched against Egypt. And when they were a part of Syria, which is called Palestine, the king of Egypt met them with gifts and prayers and persuaded them to come, to come no further. They ruled Asia for 28 years, and all the land was wasted by reason of their violence and arrogance. The great number of them were entertained and made drunk and were then slain by the Medes. In other words, the Medes came in, took over, got them all drunk, and then slaughtered slaughtered them and here's a description of how they operated they drank the blood of the first enemies they killed in battle they made napkins out of their scalps and drinking bowls out of the skull of the slain these were barbaric men they had the most filthy habits ever never washed with water Tertullian said <laughs> uh, so in other words, there couldn't be anything more barbaric than these Scythians. And so we look through this. Barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. You say, hey, you know, I'm not going to go to the church unless these Scythians have their own section. I mean, the gospel comes in and is changing the hearts and minds of barbarians, even Scythians. And they're coming in, and they're coming right down and joining you at church. And you would have had all these dividing walls. No, only this person can sit here, and only these people can do this. 
And in Christ, there's this new partnership. The rich, the poor, the slaves, the free, all come together one in Christ. And the concept of the slave and the free man, the slave was thought of as a, a living tool. I mean, they couldn't get married. They had hard, hardly any rights. But you know what happened when a slave got saved? Instantly, they became a brother in Christ. All right? And there would be a day that you might walk in on a Lord's Day, and a slave would get up, and he would be the preacher. And the master would be sitting in the front row. I mean, radical transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know if you've read the book of Philemon. We went through it five or six years ago. That, it's one chapter, and basically it's a, a letter about a guy who went and visited Paul. He was a slave, and he ran away. Onesimus, he runs away. And Paul says, shares the gospel with him. He's delivered. And he says, go back and, and take Onesimus as your brother. He's freed in Christ. He's been freed. And so the gospel has this way of penetrating the hearts and minds and breaking down all these different barriers that we see. And so a slave could become a teacher or an elder in a church. I just want to share one more story. Um, there was a, a profound impression that was made, and this was recorded in 202 AD. As the spectators were watching the slaughtering of certain Christians, it says that they watched when the Roman matron, a very wealthy, high-class person, stood holding the hand of her slave, Felicius, as both women face a common death for a common love of Jesus Christ. And it illustrates what Christianity did. The slave and master stood hand in hand and died for Christ. Died for the gospel as one in Christ. And how does he sum it all up? I love it. The end of verse 11. Christ is what? Christ is all and what? In all. And if Christ is in all of us, then we are all equal. That's the, that's the key. Christ is all and in all. Well, <clears throat> next week we are going to pick up where we left off. Um, mostly we focused on the work and the sanctifying work that God has done with putting on the new man. Next time we're going to talk about what it is to do in response, and that all starts in verse 12. So uh, thank you for listening today. If you need prayers this morning, you're welcome to come forward. And please stand as we sing the song of invitation. Thank you.